Hello and welcome to Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. I am your host, Oliver Brackenbury. The Merrill Collection of Science Fiction, Speculation, and Fantasy is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre materials. Each week, we explore a different world of genre fiction in conversation with a special guest. Today, we'll be digging into Pulp Magazines, that fertile ground of mostly short genre fiction whose heyday ran through the 30s, 40s, and 50s. My guest is Neil Meacham, a co-founder of the annual Fantastic Pulp Show and Sale, held every spring in collaboration with the Friends of the Merrill Collection. A lifelong collector of things on paper, Neil spent most of his professional career in print production. He got started reading reprints of the pulps in the 70s, with titles like The Shadow, Tarzan, Doc Savage, and The Spider, as well as becoming familiar with not only the authors, but also great artists like Frank Frazetta and Boris Vallejo, whose work graced the covers of those reprints. Hello, Neil. Hello, Oliver. Thanks for coming by. Oh, glad to have you. Uh, so, uh, we may as well start with what exactly is meant by pulp? You know, is it a type of magazine, a style of writing, uh, just referring to the materials, you know, of the paper, or, or what? To some degree, it's both. Uh, the term pulp fiction carries a sort of a wider context in terms of a style of writing. What we're looking at here in reference to the Merrill Collection are the actual pulp magazines that were out in the early 1900s, and there we're talking about a format itself, as well as the paper, which is where the term pulp comes from. It was the, uh, the cheap wood pulp paper that they were printed on was where the expression derived. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, a format roughly 7 by 10, a little wider than a standard comic book today, anywhere from 96 to 192 pages interior, sometimes more color cover with a painted illustration on the front. The interior is all text, two columns with occasional line drawings on the inside. So it's very much a reader's format as opposed to like comic books, which are more visual. Yeah, and a wide variety of genres, right? Because, you know, you say Pulp yes. Fiction, and fair enough, most people think of Quentin Tarantino's movie before they think of the Pulp. Yes, true. It actually covered all of the bases that were suitable to be covered in the early 1900s. There was no genre left untouched, so to speak. It was really the first form of inexpensive reading for the general public. So it's sort of the precursor to paperbacks and other forms of fiction. There were a lot of other magazines available at the time, but they tended to be a little more expensive and they had a mix of fiction and non-fiction, whereas the pulps were exclusively fiction. Okay, so yeah, so I mean, while we're, we're around the start here, could you tell us like roughly what kicked off the era of the pulps and what accounts for their popularity? There's a couple of things, actually. You're looking at the late 1800s when it started, so the Industrial Revolution is underway, but in particular, you had changes in the printing industry in terms of what could be done, and the expansion of roadways, the railways, and the postal system meant that you could get products like that right across the country uh, out into people's hands. So that took off as a form of entertainment, because, of course, we're talking pre-internet, pre-TV, and all that sort of stuff. So reading and radio were two big forms of entertainment for people. So once all of a sudden you could go and get a relatively cheap read for 10 cents or 15 cents and get four or five hours of entertainment out of it, then it, it took off and became a big thing. Right. That's one thing I've always appreciated about uh, the Pulse, is there was a democratization of entertainment, which is just, just yes. nice to see. So who would be some of the key authors and titles, you know, that got their start in the pulps? Probably the biggest one would be Edgar Rice Burroughs. Um, You're looking at 1912 there for the beginning of John Carter and Tarzan. Uh, Almost all of Burroughs' original material was first published in the pulps themselves. Hmm. So he would be one of the big names, and he's one of the first real superstars in the pulps as well in terms of his name on the cover being a sales tool. A little later on, you've got H.P. Lovecraft in there and Weird Tales in the 1920s and 30s. 
Robert E. Howard, creator of Conan and Solomon Kane, mm -hmm. also in there in the mid to late 20s and 30s. Uh, Zorro began in the pulps, Johnston McCulley, so those are characters there that all went on to other, or to form other franchises as well in terms of both movies, other forms of entertainment rather than just the straight read. Right, and I mean, uh, modern-day comic books, their roots basically came out of imitations of the pulse, right? Yes. Like, Batman was kind of the shadow when he first started. He, had, yeah. he was packing a pistol, for God's sake. It, it was either Bill Finger or uh, Jerry Robinson admitted that the shadow had been a big influence on Batman. So, yes, there's, they're definitely... Un and all of those guys would have been reading the pulps as young men and whatnot, or young women, so they, that's the influence that they would have had. But also, a little later in the game, you get up into the 40s, you've got Ray Bradbury and mm -hmm. uh, Robert Block and other authors in there as well. So it covered quite a span and introduced quite a few people to the public. Yeah, I mean, um, so what, you know, what was it like working for The Pulse, like especially as a writer, you know? What was the experience? It was a huge market at the time because there were all kinds of titles and the need for material was huge. So at the same time, though, it paid very poorly. So unfortunately, you had to turn it out in volume in order to make a living. Mm -hmm. So it could be good if you could turn it out fast enough and if you could make the sales. Those are kind of the two stumbling blocks as they are currently. But to give you sort of a rough idea of it, a lot of it paid a penny a word, sometimes less. Mm -hmm. And if you were a, a prominent name, you might get two and a half cents or three cents maybe up into the latter part of your career. But what it really meant was you probably had to turn out a minimum of five to 10,000 words a month in order to survive and be able to sell it as a writer. So if you look at, at, at sort of, say, maybe 50 or 60 pages of a standard hardcover, you've got to turn that out every month and be able to find a buyer for it. Now, conversely, if you if you were a decent name and you had regular sales, you could actually do extremely well. Some of the guys were actually making a few thousand dollars a month, which was huge money at the time. So there's uh, there's a little bit of both there. Same with the art; it it paid very poorly, but if you could crank it out and you and you could get a buyer, then you could actually do pretty well. Okay, so what were some of like the flagship titles, the main ones when it came to sci-fi, fantasy, horror, that kind of thing? The, the big name there would probably be Weird Tales. Um, it's one of the ones that most people have heard of, and a lot of the classic material that we think of now, the H.P. Lovecraft, the Howard, some of Bradbury's early stuff was all in the pages of Weird Tales, so it's one of the big ones. Amazing stories and astounding on the science fiction front really gave SF its groundwork in terms of making it available to the market that existed and in terms of developing a market that, that people sort of didn't really even recognize was there. Mm -hmm. So those were kind of the big ones. On the mystery side, then Black Mask is probably the big one because the, the hard-boiled private detective as we know him was created in their pages and that slapped over into movies and other forms of entertainment as well. So there was a lot of, of what we're accustomed to now actually began in the Pulse because it was the medium at the time. Hmm. I must admit, I always think of comic books because that was a big thing for me growing up yes. and, and the influences and one of Batman's biggest villains is a gangster called Black Mask. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. The, I'm sure the guys were all reading the pulp material and it's, it's kind of what inspires people to put it out. Inspiration is an odd thing too because it doesn't mean that you have to imitate what you've read or you have to copy it. It just means that it's something that excited you about doing something of your own. So I think all of those guys were likely looking at those magazines and those characters and thinking, yeah, this is, this is how to tell a story. The other thing that, that's interesting with the pulp is, although it paid by the word and it paid very poorly, you didn't get away with any padding. It had to be very concise, very clean, and there's no way you'd get away with the bloated epic novels that we have now with drag on forever. It wouldn't work. So you had to tell a very concise story, sometimes in a very limited number of pages. 
Yeah, and that's definitely a difficult skill taken from somebody who's tried. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, a lot, uh, a lot of the market is basically five thousand words or less. So you're talking anywhere from like six to eight pages, maybe up to ten, twelve pages. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a lot of it is very short, very punchy, and you've got to be turning it out in order to make a go of it. Are pulps, you know, strictly an American thing, or there are Canadian ones, British ones, you know? The, uh, it is really a U.S. market. The magazines were uh, primarily a U.S. invention. There were other versions of them. There are two, uh, there are some Canadian pulps that are purely Canadian, but very few. Most of the Canadian printings we had were actually U.S. magazines with a change in date and change of the ads to cater them specifically to our market. They did release some of the magazines translated into other languages, like in South America, and there were some released in Britain. Hmm. I've seen one Cuban one that was yeah. a, an adaptation, but they were primarily a, a U.S. market, yes. With some of the Canadian stuff, too, there's a little bit of a cheat, because during the Second World War, as a protectionist attitude, they started putting out pulps that they were saying were purely Canadian wasn't entirely true. They were taking some material from the U.S. and some new Canadian material and merging it together, but it made it sound like we were, we were kind of catering to our people. Hmm, okay. Um, so when, when would you say the era of the classic pulps ended and why? You know, like... I would say the, the end, because we're talking the format primarily here, yeah. the end is the late 1950s, around 1960. I've never seen anything from 1960 onwards that that conforms exactly to the standard format. There are things that looked similar, but you could argue that it did last on into the 50s, 60s, and 70s, because some of the magazines did shrink down to digest size, which is around five by seven. Uh, amazing stories lasted for decades afterwards. There's a whole slew of science fiction and other titles that started up in the 50s in digest format and lasted for quite some time. So you could sort of argue that it, it didn't exactly die out at the no, end of the 50s. I think Amazing Stories actually just recently did a Kickstarter and has returned it, once yeah, again. It's on issue four or five by now, I think. I'm not sure how far it went up. I know I've seen them sporadically up into the 80s and whatnot. I'm not sure what the if there's an official cutoff date for it. But mm. there were quite. But the 50s and 60s actually had a, a ton of digest material, which is very pulp-esque, but it's, it's a sort of a shrunken format as opposed to the full size. So technically, for the purists of the magazine collecting portion itself, then we call the end of the 50s the cutoff point. Right, but when it comes to, say, classic characters like Doc Savage, The Shadow, and so on, I mean, you, you largely see them vanish or move to other mediums like comic books, yes. like I think by the 50s, right? Yeah. Like, Some of the major characters did appear in Golden Age comics as well, adaptations mm -hmm. of the stories, but the characters went on to other medium and other formats as well. So you had movies and TV shows. There's been talk of restarting some of those uh, um, in current times as well. Mm -hmm. How they're going to handle some of the material, I have no idea. But a lot of the characters, like Tarzan and, and John Carter and Zorro, they've continued on, even though the pulps are basically dead, and, and primarily in movies and other forms. All right. So I guess I sort of get, we've, we've covered this a little bit, but you know, I would want to talk to you about the influence the classic pulps have had on modern sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, where you most see that, because it can be difficult sometimes to convince people to look back to older material, especially stuff whose era, quote-unquote, is over. Right. And they might say, well, why would I want to check that out when they've got all this wonderful new stuff? But it's, right. you know, uh, sort of an ethos of our show is trying to say, well, there's a line connecting. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, and, and you can learn stuff that can help you, especially as a creator, but also as a reader. Sure. The material is getting a bit dated. You're talking about stuff that's 100 years old or close to it in some cases. So you do have to have a little bit of an understanding of the era in order to enjoy it mm -hmm. because there are things that just don't go on. There's no cell phones. There's no internet, things like that. A little bit of an appreciation. 
But I think what you'd find is that most of the, the major authors that we have now who've been around for a while have all cited some of the pulp material as influences on them. George Martin has talked about Robert E. Howard. He was reading that, and I'm pretty sure Stephen King's mentioned Lovecraft. Oh, there yeah, are, many times. Yeah, there. That's the sort of material that people coming up were reading and absorbing. The the nature of it in terms of how those people created something atmospheric, not necessarily the actual descriptions or what went on, but how do I make an evocative story, particularly in horror or in science fiction, that's going to call to people? And especially as science fiction progressed in the pulp era there, you got away from strictly stories about other planets where this is really cool, we'll talk about aliens, <laughs> into a sort of a humanized element where you actually got character-driven stories. It just happens to be taking place in space. So uh, in terms of what came before the pulps and then going into there, uh, how would you say the pulps were you know, breaking ground? What were they doing that hadn't been done before uh, in terms of storytelling? Making money. Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, they did do that. But uh, I think the, the real advantage to it is that there wasn't anything like it in quantity beforehand. There were the dime novels in the, in the mid-1800s and whatnot, but they were relatively low circulation and they, they were kind of formulaic. There were other magazines available at the time in the late 1800s, but a lot of them were catered primarily to a female audience and they were a little more expensive. They, they didn't have the all-fiction portion that the pulps had, which was really, I think, the, the driving element. If you just wanted some sit-down and enjoyable read or reading entertainment, then they were it. Also, as, the, as cover art progressed and whatnot and interior art progressed, then they became really attractive visually as well. So you're looking at this giant ocean of them on the newsstands and whatnot. It was pretty exciting stuff to go there and pick something out. Assuming you could afford it, of course. Of course, yeah. Um, and I guess, uh, of course, it was primarily a domain of uh, white fellas charging around, as it was the you know the style at the time. Yes. But uh, it can be nice for people looking back to try and find voices that are closer to their own. Were there any prominent, say, uh, women authors, or maybe were any authors of color able to get into the market? They are a product of the times, so consequently the era is a little more limited than what we're used to now. Um, but yes, there were certainly women authors and there were women artists and whatnot in the, in the mix there, as well as editors. A couple of names linked to mind in particular in the SF field, Judith Merrill, of course, yes. the, uh, the originator of the collection, and Catherine Moore and Lee Brackett, who also did screenplays for movies in the 40s and 50s. When you get into the editorial side, you've got uh, Dorothy McElwraith at Short Stories. When they took over Weird Tales in the early 40s, she edited up to the end in the 1950s and brought in Ray Bradbury and other writers that, uh, that were new to the magazine. Daisy Bacon edited um, Street and Smith's Love Story magazine for nearly 20 years, which was a hugely successful title for them. And interestingly enough, in the late 20s and early 30s, she was commenting that women should have a career first and a husband second so that they felt they had established themselves, but also so that their husbands knew that they weren't just chasing them as a provider because they already had that established for right, them right. on their own. Artistically, a uh, little, little light on the numbers art-wise for women, but a few very prominent ones. Margaret Brundage with Weird Tales. Virtually everybody who thinks of Weird Tales who's seen any has seen her covers, and those are the ones people think of. Dorothy Flack did a, a, a lot of um, romance illustrations as well, and uh, Gloria Stahl did a lot of uh, detective illustrations in the 40s and 50s for Dime Mystery and for other magazines as well. So women were certainly a presence. I think they were probably a little bit outnumbered, but there's also a lot of behind-the-scenes material in terms of people reading stuff on the slush pile, assistant editors, proofreaders, all those kinds of people, and there would certainly have been a, uh, a, a fair portion of women involved there as well. Hmm. 
So you were mentioning artists near the end there. Why don't we move over to pulp artists? What would you say is you know uh, the influence that their works have had moving forward? It's because you had to compete on the newsstands with a flashy cover, then the cover art is certainly extraordinary in a lot of magazines, especially in the 30s when it really gets rolling. Now, a lot of it is what we would consider politically incorrect currently, but it certainly had punch and had appeal. It's a very sort of posterized approach in the early years, something that has a lot of graphic impact and a lot of, of dynamism to it. You're telling uh, a story right away by seeing this thing, giving an impression of what the magazine is all about, and getting people to lure, you know, lure it in. So the essence of the artwork there was that you had to catch people's eye when there was a lot of competition. So it had to be good, and in a lot of cases it was terrific. Unfortunately, very little of it has survived to the present times, but it was great stuff in its own. Right, because there was sort of um, a stigma around it, right, as being just kind of trash. And so, you know, readers would just, you know, read it once and chuck it out. The artists wouldn't save their originals. The big problem with it is that uh, you're talking about an era before material like that was returned to the artist. It wasn't a common practice. Mm -hmm. Most of it, once it was used and it had been shot, it just either got stacked up in a warehouse and eventually thrown out, or it just got thrown out anyway because it took up too much space and it was problematic to, to store it. Some of it did find its way back to the artist. Some of it did find its way out into the market. But there are all kinds of horror stories about stuff going up in flames and warehouse fires and being thrown out and early science fiction conventions with Virgil Finlay illustrations that they couldn't sell for 50 cents or a dollar being thrown out for free into the audience and things like that. So it's, it, it just wasn't highly regarded enough at the time for people to take it seriously and want to keep it. Luckily, some people did keep a portion of it, otherwise we would have none. But there are entire titles that there was just nothing left in the way of art. Oh man, I'm really grateful for some things like the Merrill Collection and what they're yes. doing. Yep, no, um, absolutely. So I know it must be hard to choose given your expansive knowledge of the the, you know, the, the, the works, but you know, pick a pick a favorite cover. You know, what was one of the most dynamic things you've ever seen? Uh, what, what drew your eye to it kind of thing? That's kind of a tough one because there's so much of it. Um, uh, I got into the pulps through the hero side of things with the shadow. So there are a number of George Rosen shadow covers from the mid to late 30s that are just terrific stuff. They're really eye-catching, really dynamic. Those really drew me into it. Mm -hmm. There are also um, just a lot of, of great graphic approaches in general. The spicy series, which are, again, a little more risque and are, are somewhat taboo in terms of the content, there's a lot of great cover material there because they were pretty much selling the uh, the concept there to you visually. But right. uh, it's hard to pin down any one thing in particular. It also depends on what kind of a style you like. But there's a lot of really good stuff in a lot of different varieties too. Some of them are very painterly in their approach. Some are very graphic. Some are very bold. There's, there's a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, so nowadays, would you say, you know, is pulp dead or is it still kind of with us, you know? Is, is, is there like a new pulp? For, for the people who are fans of the format itself, then it's dead, and we're okay with that. It came, it went, it's an encapsulated era, and when you talk about the pulps, it has to be material from that zone, because it's, it, it is partly a product of the times, and it reflects it in the writing. So we don't really acknowledge that, there's, uh, that it's not dead, it is. There are people who disagree, who feel that, that uh, material that they're writing now reflects the nature of it and kind of has a, uh, a similar tone. So it, it, there is a little bit of both there, I would say. I'm not really up on the new pulp portion of things myself, but again, it depends on who you ask as to what their opinion is. 
Okay. So, uh, of course, we, we have made it clear that one can find many fine pulps at the Merrill Collection, and they can go check it out, but of course not everybody is in Toronto. No, true. <laughs> so, uh, how would you maybe suggest that listeners can access some of the old pulp uh, magazines? You know, are there inexpensive reprints available, online versions? Like, what could you tell us about that? A lot of the better writers or the bigger names have been reprinted probably several times in various formats, paperbacks and hardcovers and other collections, so some of the really good material is fairly available in terms of picking up a used copy. If you want to see what they look like, there are all kinds of sources online. You can go on eBay and search for pulp magazines, 1930s and things like that, and get an idea of what the covers look like and things that, that's readily available. There are some online research, uh, research sources that are terrific for that. Galactic Central has virtually a cover of just about everything you could possibly imagine. You can click on those, see a little image of that. I'm a hold-it-in-your-hands-and-read-it kind of guy, so I'm not really sure what's available in terms of electronic downloads. Mm -hmm. There's probably some. I don't think it's as widespread as, say, the manual reprints still are. But there are also a lot of small press publishers putting out anthologies of some of the more obscure material. It's not necessarily something you're going to find at chapters, but if you're going online and you're searching and you can dig it up from them, you can probably get it from there. And if you just need a good used copy or something, if you can't find it in a used bookstore, then eBay is a great bet for that. Right. Plus, I also hear there's this annual pulp show. There uh, is, you yes. can tell us a little about that. Yes, yes in Toronto, no less. But uh, yeah, the fantastic pulp show on sale is, uh, is every spring. It's a one-day event. We cover uh, original pulp magazines, reprints, related items, that sort of thing. There's a, a great selection of stuff for somebody who just wants to come and see what it's all about. Three bucks to get in for the day, which is uh, pretty cheap. It might have to go up to five. I shouldn't say that, so I better be careful there. So why don't we end with providing a beginning for anybody who wants to delve into the pulps. Um, you know, it's a lot of work. It's a large body. True. With many, many authors, many, many magazines, um, many places to go, as you've just covered a bit for, uh, you know, where to find it. Of course, personal tastes have to dictate this somewhat, but if you were to give advice to someone who said, well, all right, man, this sounds great, but where do I begin? Right. Where, where might that be a good place? I would say take a look online, just doing some general research as to what's available, what some of the titles look like. The Merrill is a great resource to come and actually see the magazines in person so that you can get an idea of what they actually look like. And from there, maybe get some tips too on favorite authors and things like that. But um, there are chat groups and there are, there are resources online where you can see a lot of the material if you just want to get started. Pick out some names or take some of the major names to start with, like Lovecraft and the Howard and the Bradbury and the, you know, the Burroughs, mm. and maybe pick up a reprint of that sort of economically as you can and get started with that, see if it appeals to you, and go from there. There is a lot of terrific material in the pulps. There's a lot of great writing. There's a lot of great art. It was a large volume entity, so there's a lot of crap as well, just like there is currently. For but, sure. Uh, but you've got to sort of pick your, you know, pick your way through it a little bit and see what appeals to you, what types of things you like, and then uh, maybe dig some of it up in person. In some ways, it is literally impossible to read the original unadulterated version of so many of these classic stories, even by major authors like uh, Dashiell Hammett. Um, Neil, could you tell us a little about that? Yeah, unfortunately, some of the material is so scarce that you're unlikely to be able to dig it up in original form. There are magazines that there are probably less than half a dozen copies known to exist, so trying to pin it down uh, in its original publication is not so easy. Reprints are of varying quality over the years. There is a lot of, of well-done material. Unfortunately, in some cases, things have been edited or adulterated, and quite often when people go to reprint something subsequently, they go back to a previous reprint rather than to the original source. So you're not necessarily getting it in its pure form. 
classic example would be with some of Dashiell Hammett's early material, Red Harvest in particular, which is one of his best stories, personal opinion. Then when Alfred A. Knopf put out the hardcover, they edited it, not substantially exactly, but they did change some things and clip a few bits out. And the version that you get subsequently is from the hardcover, as opposed to from the original magazine story. So you are you are looking at the true original version in the magazines disappearing to a certain extent, depending on what's been done to it since. Right. Often when people do reprints, they don't go back to the original no. material. Yeah, no, because it's too difficult to chase it down, and also you're looking at things that are relatively fragile, so you don't necessarily want to go that route. In a lot of cases, it is going back to a previous reprint or a paperback or something like that for basic source material and making some minor changes and going from there. With some of Robert E. Howard's material when it was reprinted in the 50s in Gnome Press, then changes were made to it in order to make it a definitive version, so to speak. But then in the 60s and 70s when the Els Camp and Lynn Carter versions were out, the Frazetta covers were wonderful, but they added quite a bit of their own editing and writing to the material. So it's not really a pure version of Robert E. Howard as it should have been. Now, it did entice a lot of people to pick it up and take it on, which is great, but it's not really exactly as Howard wrote it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I certainly know um, a lot of the Howard, because I've been reading those Howard stories uh, in those uh, Alice Friday to Camp and, and Carter uh, compilations, and I was mortified to discover that some of the stories were, you know, incomplete scraps that they had decided to run yes. with and finish, or they were uh, historically grounded stories that they decided to just kind of like rewrite to make them into Conan yeah. stories, you know, it used to be a Middle Eastern thing, and now it's just Conan and a vaguely Middle Eastern yes. nation, and it just, um, I, it makes me think, uh, you know, we, we kind of owe a debt in a way to these, I'll call them meddlers, <laughs> right? Um, you know, whether it's uh, Carter and DeCamp with Conan or, say, August Derleth and other people, uh, you know, with uh, Lovecraft, you know, they made sure that these uh, great works didn't fall into oblivion. But boy, did they muddy the waters. Yes, unfortunately that's true, and it's a mixed bag because, as you say, at least it survived, but not in its original form kind of thing. So you, you do have to be a little bit careful about the version that you chase down as best you can. But unfortunately some of the material has just never been reprinted in its truly original form right off the pages of the magazine. Now that's changing to some extent now with a lot of the small press publishers who are taking material on, is they are doing it straight off of the originals, they aren't making any changes. Well, not intentionally anyway, maybe the odd accidental one. But they are putting it straight out as it was, and there it is. So that that's, I think, getting a little better. What I, as much as I'm a hold it in your hands and read it kind of guy, I would like to see a digital archive of a lot of the classic material scanned right off the original pages for two reasons. One, it would preserve it in its original form with no changes, just exactly as it was, so that you can read it that way. And secondly, because of the scarcity and the fragility of some of the originals, it's out of the question for a lot of people to ever own some of this material. And it would be nice to see it archived permanently in that regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and honestly, something I, I would add, if I may, is that, um, at least in my experiences of digging into old uh, paperbacks from the 70s, that's kind of been my jam recently, even the stuff that can look kind of like crap, it can still be a useful resource uh, as a writer, and it can still be a really fun resource as a just a reader. Yes. Um, because sometimes even what it might lack in terms of uh, raw prose quality, it may make up for in just crazy, fun, goofy ideas. Yes. There, you know? are, there are a couple of different aspects to writing in general. 
the first part is the imagination behind it. Mm -hmm. What is the story you're telling? Is it interesting? What's going on? As well as the style of writing itself. Um, so that, that you kind of have to take into account. We are looking at dated material and the style of writing might not be exactly what you're expecting, but is it a good story? And in a lot of cases with the pulps, then it's just a darn good story and it depends on who's telling it as to how good it is. But there's a reason that a lot of it is still around. It's still being reprinted these days and it's just, it's good. Exactly. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be talking about it. Yes. <laughs> No, if, it was, if it was truly... Basically, with any product, if somebody is still willing to collect it, then there must be something good about it. And the pulps are still being collected, so there's uh, there's some good material in there. Uh, agreed. Well, thank you very much for talking with us today, Neil. Oh, glad to be here. This has been Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, hosted by myself, Oliver Brackenbury, and produced by Chris Dickey as part of the Friends of Merrill. The Friends are an all-volunteer group dedicated to promoting the Merrill Collection through events and projects like this show. Learn more at friendsofmerrill.org. You can also check out the show notes for our social media links and to further explore today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another world.